The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. Our stories have so much knowledge embedded in them if we only take the time to understand them. Our stories always teach about values. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Monuments help us tell stories about our history and ourselves. The native people of North America have always had monuments, but they're not statues or busts on pedestals. They are features in the landscape, and each one has a story, sometimes many stories. Today on the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, we're going to hear traditional stories from Sierra Green. Her academic background is in chemistry and environmental science, but she is also Nimipu, which is the native word for the Nez Perce people. Sierra will share traditional stories about her homelands in what we now call Idaho and Eastern Oregon and Washington. She'll also explain the values and lessons those stories can mean for all of us today. Our program was an extension of the Confluence Field School, which is supported by the Emily Georges Gottfried Fund, Meyer Memorial Trust, and the Collins Foundation. Our program begins with Sierra Green introducing herself. Sierra Green. I'm called Sepulchus Wheatus, and Sepulchus Wheatus means thing that causes survival. And so I'm going to share some stories today that talk about our homelands, our culture, who we are as Nimipu. And of course, I always want to start out with a land acknowledgement. So when I think about land acknowledgement, oh, when I wake up in the morning and I see that sunrise, and I see that wind pushing the leaves around and that dew on the on the grass. And that's to me is I see you, I recognize you, I acknowledge you today in this land, in this place. And to me, it's so important to think about the generations that have stewarded the places that we call home, that we are put our feet upon. Some of you may not know that the Snake River goes all the way over into Wyoming and that the Columbia River goes all the way up into Canada. This is what I consider our homelands, because if if you've been in this area, scientifically dated back 16,000 years, I'm sure we traveled all the waterways that we could to see what was on the other side. Where does this water go? Where does it come from? So to me, that's what I consider our homelands. The Indian Claims Commissions have a different definition. Later on in the 1863 treaty, or the Thief Treaty, our homelands were reduced to this small size reservation that we have today. Fortunately, the Nez Perce, the Nimipu, we reserved the right to fish, hunt, and gather on our usual and accustomed areas, which has not clearly been defined on a map. But to me, that in- encompasses all of the Columbia River Basin. I wanted to just share that for a frame of reference for the stories that I'm going to share today. So a lot of our stories, they tell about these places that are still here today, right? These aren't just stories that happened a long time ago. Or when we start stories, we say, Wakiva. That means it happened a long time ago. If I want to say something happened a really long time ago, I'd say, Wakiva. And hold that E a lot longer. Okay, so this first story I want to share 
I'm not going to tell it. I want to share. This is the Nesper's creation story or Heart of the Monster. One of my favorite stories. And this is our creation story. So to me, this is really explains who we are, where we come from, of what it means to be Nimiku. So to start this one, we'll just listen for now. This is the story of Itzayaya, the coyote, and Iltzwautzich, the great monster, whose hardened heart lies in front of you. It happened many years ago, long before the people came, when only animals lived here. Once upon a time, Coyote was building a fish trap on the river, when he learned that a great monster was eating all the animals. So Coyote set out to see what he could do. Along the way, he took a bath and dressed up to make himself tasty to the monster. Climbing up the ridges, he looked out over the land. Suddenly, he saw a great head mounting off into the distance, loomed a huge body. Coyote had never seen anything like it. The monster could not see him because Coyote was painted brown like the swaying grass. Using rawhide ropes, Coyote tied himself to three mountains, Pilot Knob, Cottonwood Butte, and the Seven Devils. Then he called out to the monster, You have already swallowed all the animals. Why don't you swallow me too, so I won't be lonely? The monster did not know that Coyote carried with him a fire-making kit, five stone knives. So the monster inhaled like a mighty wind. He inhaled so hard that the ropes broke, and the Coyote was carried right into his gaping mouth. Coyote looked around as he walked down the wide throat of the monster. Seeing many bones, he thought, many animals have been dying. Just then, Hohosne, the grizzly bear, rushed at him, roaring and growling. Coyote said, so, you make yourself scary only to me and he kicked the bear on the nose. That is why the grizzly bear has a short nose. As Coyote continued along toward the heart of the monster, Wachpusnip, the rattlesnake, rattled at him threateningly. So, only toward me you are vicious, said Coyote. Then he stepped on the snake's head, making it flat. It is still that way today. As Coyote walked further along, the animals began to greet him. When he finally reached the heart, he cut slabs of fat from it for the animals to eat. Then he built a fire with the flints he had brought. The smoke drifted up through the monster's eyes, ears, nose. With his stone knives, Coyote began slicing out the monster's heart. One by one, the knives began to break. But he kept on cutting. When his last knife broke, Coyote grabbed the heart 
and tore it loose with his bare hands. At that moment, the great monster died, and all the animals went out the openings of his body, according to Coyote's directions. Muskrat was the last to come out, and they all had to help him, as he was caught by the tail. That is why the muskrat has no hair on his tail to this day. Everyone helped to carve the monster into large pieces. Coyote threw the pieces outward in every direction. Where they landed, nations of people sprang up. Coyote named them the Cayuse, the Blackfeet, the Coeur d'Alene's, the Yakimos. When he finished, the fox came up and said, What is the meaning of this, Coyote? You have used up the body of the monster and given it faraway lands. Is there nothing left for this place? Well, snorted Coyote, why didn't you tell me this before? Bring me some water. Coyote unwashed his bloody hands and sprinkled the drops on the ground here. From this ground came the people Coyote named the Nimipu, the Nez Perce Indians. The heart of the great monster now turned to stone still lies here to mark the place of their beginning. I really like to share that story with children and really get into character, acting it out, especially It's Yaya. I don't know why I really like to be It's Yaya when I tell stories, because maybe because he's so charismatic and there's so much that he's got a lot of things going on. If you could just pick up the little strands here and there. Well, why didn't you tell me that before? You know, he's got he's got this attitude. And I always tell people he's that guy, right? If there's something that's going to be done wrong, it's it's EIA that's going to do it. That was about a five-minute video telling of the, the story at the site itself, where the monster still lies, towards Kamii, Idaho, along the Clearwater River. And I always stop whenever I'm going eastward to Montana. It always makes me smile. It always makes me feel good. And and it's also a little bittersweet, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm leaving this place that is our creation place. Everyone will read the same story, written a little bit different. So one day, long before there were any people on the earth, a monster came down from the north. He was a huge monster, and he ate everything in sight, including the chipmunks, raccoons, mice, deer, elk, and mountain lion. Coyote decided that time had come to stop the monster. Coyote went across the Snake River and tied himself to the highest peak in the Wallowa Mountains. Then he called out to the monster on the other side of the river. He challenged the monster to try and eat him. The monster monster charged across the river and tried as hard as he could to suck Coyote off the mountain with his breath, but it was no use. Coyote's rope was too strong. This frightened the monster. He decided to make friends with Coyote, and he invited Coyote to come and stay with him for a while. One day, Coyote told the monster he would like to see all the animals in the monster's belt. The monster agreed and let Coyote go in. When he went inside, Coyote said all the animals were safe. He told them, get ready to escape. 
With his fire starter, he built a huge fire in the monster's stomach. Then he took his knife and cut the monster's heart out. The monster died a great death, and all the animals escaped. Coyote said that in honor of the event, he was going to create a new animal, a human being. Coyote cut the monster up in pieces and flung the pieces to the four winds, where each piece landed, some in the north, some to the south, others to the east and west. In the valleys and canyons and along the river, a tribe was born. It was in this way that all the tribes came to be. When he was finished, Fox said, that no tribe had been created on this spot where they stood. Coyote was sorry he had no more parts, but then he had an idea. He washed the blood from his hands with water and sprinkled the drops on the ground. Coyote said, here on the ground I make the Nez Perce. They will be few in number, but they will be strong and pure. And this is how human beings came to be. So a little bit different version of the same story. And again, when I tell a story, I really get into the detail, especially like it's the eye kicking a grizzly bear on the nose and making it flat and, and all the different things that happen in that. And I love that um, the more people I hear tell a story, the more parts I can weave into how I like to tell a story. Stories have always evolved and, but kept the same values, right? They always keep those same values, those same lessons. Some may be familiar with some of the Western stories of Hansel and Gretel or Humpty Dumpty even. Same story, sometimes the rhyme is different, but it has the same lesson and the same rhyme and reason a lot of times. And so I like to start out with that story because that tells us who we are and where we come from, where we were created, and all the things that transpired in that time for us to be here. What are the lessons of the creation story in my perception? Well, in the way that I like to tell it, man, there's so many lessons. One is always Itia is our is our number one teacher. There's a story that many have shared over generations about, you know, how all the animals came to be and what their role was. And and it's kind of hard to like answer this question without having to tell another story. That's the way stories work. And in answering this question in that story, all the animals stepped forward and said, well, I'm going to be like this. And they qualified themselves to have these qualities, these characteristics. Bees came up and said, I'm going to be like this. And elk came up and moose and sturgeon and butterfly and eagles. And everyone came forward and said, this is how I'm going to be. It's the idea was late to that, that meeting, that council that was held on the Clearwater River. By that time, again, if you can imagine it's the idea how he is, he was like, well, I'll just, I'll be like, not so, I'll be like salmon. I can swim. And he jumps in the water and tries to swim and he can't swim like salmon, you know, so effortlessly. And he wanted to be like so-and-so and he wanted to be like so-and-so. All that to say in answering this question is when it came down to it, it's Yaya couldn't be like anyone else. His role was to be our teacher. And so in, in thinking about what lessons are in the heart of the monster story, there's so many lessons about humility, right? It's easy to laugh at it. See, I ever been like, the way I tell it is, he's like, I knew that Talipa, I knew that Fox, I was going to do that, you know, real cocky. And um, he really teaches us a lot of humility. And there's a quote that is from Tuhuzu. I belong to the land out of which I came. The earth is my mother. And to me, 
that quote absolutely just embodies this story of coming from the heart of a monster. The heart that still lies upon the land. The heart of a monster. This is where we come from. The heart that still lies upon the land. There's no greater lesson that can be taught. This is where we come from. There's no greater lesson that can be taught than understanding She is my mother. I come from this land. This story here, Ant and the Yellow Jacket. Our tribal language department has this really great book that they created. I am of this land. I don't know if you can find it online anymore. The yellow jackets and the ants all live together on the hillside about 10 miles above Seminicum, most in Idaho, on the Clearwater River. The two families were quite friendly, although every once in a while, members would get into an argument, which is no more than natural. There's quite a bit of jealousy between the chief of the yellow jackets and the chief of the ants. This was not real hatred, but each saw to it as his rights were not harmed. On the whole, the two bosses got along pretty well, considering their gossiping wives and their many children. Chief Yellowjacket was used to eating his meals on top of a certain rock, and he liked dried salmon the best. One day he was seated on this rock, calmly eating a big dish of dried salmon, which his wife had set before him. Along came Chief Ant, and seeing Chief Yellowjacket calmly eating his dinner, he became very angry. It is true that here were other rocks around him for for him to use, and he could have had dried salmon if he wished. But just the sight of Chief Yellow Jacket made him very angry. Hey there, you Yellow Jacket, he shouted at him. What are you doing on that rock? I have just as much right there as you. You can't eat there without asking me. Chief Yellow Jacket looked up in surprise. Why, Aunt? What are you shouting about? I've always eaten my dinner on this very rock. That makes no difference, said Aunt. Why didn't you ask me about it? Yellow Jacket had by this time become very angry too. He rattled his wings and snapped his legs and yelled, None of your business, you little runt. Don't call me a runt, shouted Aunt. Nobody can insult me that way. So saying that, Aunt climbed up the side of the rock. And he and Yellow Jacket began to fight all over it. They fought face to face with arms locked about each other. They reared up on their hind legs, biting and poking for all they were worth. Suddenly, a great voice boomed out. Here, you, Ant, and Yellow Jacket, stop that fighting. It was Coyote who happened to be passing down on the other side of the river. He had seen them struggling, but neither of them heard him because they were too busy fighting. Again, Coyote shouted, you, Ant, and you, Yellow Jacket, I order you to stop fighting. My subjects cannot fight. There's plenty of room and plenty of food for all of us. So why be foolish? This time they heard, but neither of them would stop. A third time, Coyote warned them, this is the last time I'm going to tell you now. Stop fighting, or I shall turn you both to stone. You will no longer be great. For the Latitowit, human beings are coming. They paid no heed, so Coyote just used his magic medicine, waved his paws, and just as Ant and Yellow Jacket were arched together, Coyote turned them to stone. To this day, they remain for all to see, locked in each other's arms on top of the big rocks, 
where Yellow Jacket ate his meals, but which became a battleground because of greed. Again, a story full of lessons. This is something I remember my dad pointing out to us often as children driving by. And the Yellow Jacket, it was always a good reminder to us, you know, we always share. If you don't have enough to share with everyone, then you don't eat it then. You don't play with it then. It's not something you want to share. That's not something that needs to be put out for everyone. It's a good lesson, not just for children, but adults. We talk about greed. We talk about land rights and reservations. Is it our land or is it the land that I come from? A little bit different context when we place it like that. This next story talks about beaver and fire. So before there were humans and before anyone really had fire widespread, the pines were the only trees to have fire. And boy, did they guard it. That was their power. You know, oh, we have fire. We're not going to let anybody else have fire. The only other fire that we knew of or that the animals knew of was way up there, way up there in the sky. And that's a whole other story, right? All these stories, there's so many stories. But a cold, cold, cold winter came upon all the animal people. This cold, frigid winter. It was going to cause extinction of many species because it was going to be so cold and frigid. Only place that was warm was where the pines were because they had a big fire that they kept. And they continued to feed it and they were able to take care of that fire. They held a close responsibility of making sure that that fire was contained and that nobody else got it. They were so stingy with it, they even put guards up around the fire, making sure nobody, nobody took the fire. But every day in the morning time, like we're taught, you go and get in the cold water. And they would take turns. They would still always have guards standing there, making sure nobody's stealing the fire. With this cold winter, all the animals started to, you know, brainstorm. What are we going to do? We need fire to keep us warm. Otherwise, we're going to die. And Tuxful, he hid under the bank where beavers do. He hid under there and he thought, he watched. Yeah, those guys are standing guard today. Oh, there's that one. Yeah, he always does this at this certain time. And Oh, there's that one. He always falls asleep. And he watched and he watched. They didn't see him under there. Every morning they'd go jump in the cold water and come out and warm up by the fire. And as he started to get the routine, he watched them and he studied them. And as he was doing this, one day, a live coal that was on fire rolled out from the big fire. The guards didn't notice. The beaver looked around and he scrambled up there and he grabbed that pole and he ran as fast as he could. Not too far could he get before the pines recognized. Tuxpole has the fire! And they began to give chase as fast as they could to catch him, trying to get him because they did not want anyone else to have that fire. They were so stingy and greedy with it. It was their power. And as beaver Tuxpole begin to take a lead when he would get a great distance ahead of them, he would run straight. He would run straight so he could get away as fast as possible. But the pines, oh, the pines were giving chase. 
and they would catch up at points. So then he would start to dart side to side, side to side to try and get, you know, lose them left and right. But like you can imagine running from something. Well, that place that he was running, you can still see where he left his trail from his big tail, cutting through the canyon walls, darting from left to right, left to right, and then running straight for a distance and then darting left to right. You can still see this on the landscape. You can still see the pines as they begin to die off little by little and coming across this landscape. This landscape is in northeast Oregon on the Grand Ronde River. The Grand Ronde River, if you look on a map or you Google uh, Earth or anything like that, you can see Beaver's great chase that he gave away from the pines, killing that fire. Once Beaver, the Grand Ronde winds and goes and goes until it empties into the Snake River, not too far from where I live. Where it empties into the Snake River, Beaver crossed the river with his coal, still looking over his shoulder, making sure they weren't chasing him. There was one cedar that had joined the chase along the way, not thinking that he'd ever be able to catch Beaver. They just wanted to see what happened. And so as Beaver got to the Snake River and crossed, Cedar ran up the hill and he told the blinds, we're not going to catch him. He's gone. <laughs> but Cedar still sits up there today to see what happened, to remind us what happened when we're greedy, what happened when we are able to take care of things appropriately, like Beaver, really sacrificing, you know, a lot to go and, and get that fire to share with others. After he crossed the Snake River, he shared it with the willows. He shared it with the birch. He shared it with all these other trees, the cottonwoods and the firs and all these other trees, the cedars. Everyone now could have fire. Everyone could make fire that was given this power in this time. That was thanks to beaver, Tuxville. And a lot of people think, okay, beaver, fire, that's a nice story. But what's that really got to do? There's definitely lessons embedded in there. But when we think about ecology, the word comes from the Greek oikos, meaning household, home, or place to live. Thus, ecology deals with the organism and its environment. The interactions between individuals, between populations, and between organisms and their environment. But what does this story about beaver and fire have to do with ecology? This is the beauty of it. Our stories have so much knowledge embedded in them if we only take the time to understand them. Our stories always teach about values. And a lot of times, maybe we don't understand. Sometimes it has really old humor that doesn't make sense anymore. And this is one of those stories. You might hear that story and think, okay, beaver stole fire. But when we start to really think about, okay, beaver. You know, we're always taught things are in balance. You know, when we're given something like knowledge, then it's our responsibility to pass that on. When we're given a gift, it's our responsibility to take care of it. When we harness something like fire, it's our responsibility to keep it contained or to make sure that it's only spread accordingly. And so the American Geophysical Union this international science union organization of over 130,000 scientists across the world 
published this article in their EOS magazine, a monthly magazine that comes out. And I read on the on the um, front page, are beavers nature's little firefighters? Of course, that caught my eye because beaver, one, and my connection to beaver, but two, beavers and fire? I thought that was just a meaningful story that nobody else really understood. But to see this on an international scientific level really piqued my interest. The subtitle there says, it's about damn time. Beavers are acknowledged for their firefighting skills in five recent blazes. You know, how much can we say about beaver and fire? Besides, he didn't just take fire. No. Even to this day, he still upholds his responsibility to keep places safe from fire. There's so many lessons embedded in our stories. If we only take the time to be curious, to understand, to recognize, especially the values. Yes, there's so many ecological components, but we can't come to those conclusions without the values that are so intricately intertwined in those. You've been listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast with Sierra Green, a member of the Nez Perce tribe and an indigenous traditional ecological knowledge educator and consultant. This program was an extension of the Confluence Field School, which is supported by the Emily Georges Gottfried Fund, Meyer Memorial Trust, and the Collins Foundation. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. 